Church with a drive to deep center and gives the Blue Jays the early lead. Talk about big players rising to the occasion in big games. George Springer's done it throughout his whole career. Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, September 29th. Brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Arden Swelling, Ben Nicholson Smith, our producers are Christian, Ryan, and Nick Andrade. And Ben, it is only Thursday, and uh, this week has felt like a year with what has been happening uh, down at Rogers Center. You and I were both there for the entirety of this Blue Jays Yankees series that, I mean, my goodness, you know, just from the jump, like game one was this insanely tense and um, you know, tightly contested game, and then game two had all these interesting character arcs and you know things that that happened in it, and then obviously game three was historical. And fires, and it's hit in the air, line drive left field, and there it is. Aaron Judge has tied Roger Maris's American League record with his 61st home run on the season. And just about everybody here in the ballpark is standing and applauding the accomplishment as Judge hits number 61. So much happened. I'll, I'll kind of leave it to you. What do you want to talk about off of this week from you know the, the three games that we just saw between the Blue Jays and the Yankees? There's a lot to get to. Yeah, there really is a missed opportunity for the Jays to clinch at home. We'll see when that happens. Obviously, it'll happen soon, probably by the time a lot of people listen to this. But, you know, I, I think we have to start with Aaron Judge. You know, to hit 61 home runs is pretty remarkable. Hit number 61 in Toronto on Wednesday night. I mean, it was it was pretty cool to see that. The Jays were pitching him so carefully all series long. And there are just so many kind of offshooting aspects to this. I mean, there's the, there's the debate that, you know, has kind of been re- uh, ignited, I guess you could say, with Roger Maris Jr., who was there in Toronto, saying that he doesn't think that Maguire and Bonds have legitimate claim to the home run title. I, I don't think there's necessarily a lot to get to there because, you know, Bonds is the home run king and Aaron Judge has had an amazing, amazing season. But then you've also got the reaction from the Blue Jays. And I mean, Kevin Gosman saying he really didn't like having to change the the balls out. And you kind of hear, you know, and being around the team the last few days you start to hear some just like some little grumblings and everyone respects what Aaron Judge is doing there's no question about that there's an appreciation for what Judge is doing but you know there's there's maybe some remarks like all right this is a Yankee record this is not the Barry Bonds record and really I think that it's a relief for the Blue Jays to be able to move on from this because it was all about Judge as it should have been but now it can be about the Blue Jays again it was a circus, man. <laughs> Those three days at Rogers Center. It was just mayhem. Just the the amount of media, the amount of coverage, just the amount of like just people that showed up for that. I mean, pregame, I'm walking down to the field. I'm coming down gate seven at Rogers Center and I come out into kind of the loading bay area that you go through to the field where the Yankees bus arrives, and I see like just this throng of like eight friggin' camera operators and a bunch of you know still photographers and social media people and like people that i don't even know why they were there it's this massive huddle of people i'm like why are all these people in the loading bay they're waiting for the yankees bus because they're going to document aaron judge walking off the bus and like walking to the clubhouse as i assume that that massive throng of people has been doing every day for like the last however many weeks like it was just insane on the first game of the series Aaron Judge goes out to take batting practice he typically doesn't do that and I now understand why he doesn't do that but he goes out to take batting practice on the field because he wants to see the ball fly at Rogers Center and the guy can't turn around without like 30 cameras in his face and the Yankees have all their PR people trying to like herd people around and just like the amount of hangers on (laughs) just the amount of folks that are there that I don't know that they serve much of a purpose, to be honest with you. It was just nuts. Aaron Judge goes over to like sign some, you know, balls for fans. Like try to do like baseball player stuff. And there is just this crazy semicircle of people documenting like everything that the guy does. And the guy does the exact same thing every day. <laughs> it was just like honestly, circus is the best word that that I can describe, that I can use to describe it. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's all definitely part of the scene down there. I mean, just a huge amount of media, uh, a huge amount of attention from fans. And and rightfully so. I mean, it was actually very interesting to notice the response from fans. They were booing Blue Jays pitchers, you know, at a time that the Jays are on the brink of contention, competing, obviously, with the Yankees. And they were booing Blue Jays pitchers when they would walk Judge, which is really interesting. Obviously, one of those walks turned out to be very well-timed on the part of the Blue Jays as they were able to bring in Tim Meza and he faced Rizzo and and that ended up being a great move by John Schneider. So, you know, it, it really was a unique environment down there. I don't think that we're going to see Blue Jays fans booing their home team very often like that. Um, so that was definitely something. And it was cool actually to just kind of watch Aaron Judge go through all of this because Facing that many cameras, like I literally can't imagine it. It would be so overwhelming. You would have so little space to yourself to try to go about your business. And you know that every little interaction you have is going to be blasted out there into the world. So, you know, I thought that in the face of all of that attention, his ability to handle that was remarkable. I mean, he stayed composed. He stayed very even keeled. Even after he hits this home run, he pretty much stays calm in the aftermath of it, he's not out there, you know, making uh, particularly bold statements. I mean, he cracks the odd grin afterwards, but more or less, he's just in Yankee speak, you know, which is, I mean, you can you can look at that two ways, but he's an ex- incredibly composed individual, which obviously contributes to his ability to get to 61 home runs. And it's a very impressive achievement, you know, whether you think the American League record is significant or not. And like, you could also say, I, I, you know, a friend of mine said, you know, this is kind of like saying that someone has the Western Conference points record in the NBA. And like, no one would care about that. So I, I get, you know, the American League record isn't the same as the Major League record, but at the same time, it's impressive. And as John Schneider said, he didn't break the record; he tied the record. <laughs> so, you know, and John Schneider wasn't throwing shade at Aaron Judge, but you know, he didn't break the record; he tied the record. So, it, there's a lot going on there. But it was it was it was interesting to watch. Whether or not all that pressure and all that attention and spotlight is deserved, you cannot deny that it existed and that it was there. And so I agree with you that like, and I thought about this throughout the series, Aaron Judge is just a tremendously impressive athlete. I mean, you think about, and you can even like draw it out to just the context of his season and the figures that were put in front of him preseason by the new york yankees it's like 215 million dollars something in that realm and he turned that down and said no i'm gonna like go out and play my year in a walk year and see if i can make myself some more money and oh my goodness let me just go out and have like one of the best offensive seasons that we've seen in quite some time and let me go out and like hit 61 home runs i mean the second place home run hitter in mlb this year has like 40 it's just unbelievable like what he has done so that attention and that spotlight like that pressure has been there for him all season long literally from spring training in the middle of february and it is just like gradually increased he has not had time to breathe he was an all-star went to the all-star game did all that like there was no there's been no break this has been a daily grind for him the entire time and every night he has just like shown up and done the damn thing not only physically right like you think about what this guy has done physically this year 151 games played to this point nearly 700 played appearances he's leading the league in batting average OBP slugging OPS home runs ribbies runs like what you know just the one of the most productive players in the league physically like playing great right field runs the bases well he's got 16 steals this year I mean he's done everything and then you think about like the mental composure and just the metal that it takes these plate appearances that he's having at Rogers Center like you've got ESPN talking about oh are we gonna cut into a Dallas Cowboys Monday night football game the entire baseball world the entire sports world is watching every moment for this guy at the plate and what does he do? He sticks to his approach. Aaron Judge saw 75 pitches over 15 plate appearances at Rogers Center in three games. That's five pitches per plate appearance. Like, that's special. 
the walks that Aaron Judge was drawing at Rogers Center were completely earned. It's not like the Blue Jays were throwing him four non-competitive pitches that he would never swing at. The Blue Jays were throwing him strikes. Like the Blue Jays were attacking him carefully, attacking him like tactfully as you should against the best hitter on the planet. But it wasn't, these weren't gimmies. Like these are pitches that were like strike to ball, breaking balls down and away. What's been Aaron Judge's kryptonite throughout his entire career? Breaking stuff down and away. For years, he would swing at that stuff and you could get him out that way. And umpires give the guy like the most unfair strike zone because he's six seven. So pitches at his shins are like called strikes because umpires just aren't used to like, you know, judging a, a strike zone of, of a man of that stature. So he's dealing with that. He's making adjustments with that. Like I just think it's so, so impressive that like he is as composed and just as like sound mentally just in the context of all this and with the insane amounts of pressure that go into everything that he does on on a baseball diamond. I mean, it really is one of the more impressive feats athletically, I think, that I've seen in quite some time. Yeah, it's it's really impressive, really impressive. I think the focus is remarkable. You don't see that from even a lot of high level, high performing athletes. I mean, I wonder how long he can sustain it. Uh, maybe he can sustain it into next year or for six or seven more years. I find that hard to imagine as great as Aaron Judge is. Like, you know, athletes have peak seasons physically. And I wonder if he's having a peak season physically and mentally here because the amount, the extent to which he seems to be locked in. And this is not just, you know, you and me looking at this, but people in the game certainly are impressed with the the presence and and the focus that Aaron Judge brings to each plate appearance. And so I, I definitely wonder how long that can last. That being said, I mean, I think that whoever signs him is going to get a great player next year, someone who can play center field, do all these different things, be the best hitter in baseball. You know, the Jays should be in on Aaron Judge when he's a free agent in a couple months' time. No question about that. In the meantime, he's obviously doing a lot of impressive things for the New York Yankees and and whoever ends up with Judge is going to get a great player and clearly he's you know the estimates that i've heard just you know informally from people around the game easily over 300 million dollars at this point and he's a guy who's 30 years old already right so you're probably talking you know is that eight years times i don't know 38 i'm not sure what the aav would be but certainly he's got a case for a very high one after hitting 61 home runs and counting the yankees can afford it you know after the way they've cleaned up financially and this year with what he's done for them, the Yankees can afford to pay a little bit of that back. <laughs> and they will not be, if without Aaron Judge, here's the thing, without Aaron Judge, they're not a very good team. They are not. And with him, they are a very good team because he's an 11 war player. So, you know, that makes a huge, huge difference. But honestly, you look at that lineup last night, and I know they had Torres out, and, and I know that Rizzo was managing and all this stuff, but that's not a particularly imposing lineup. Josh Donaldson, kind of past his prime at this point. I don't think he's particularly hard to pitch to. You know, you look at that pitching staff, it has to be so good for the Yankees to have a chance on days that the judge isn't in there for whatever reason. And and it's an aging group, like Oswaldo Cabrera, okay, nice player, but are you going to put him in there as this like Aaron Judge replacement? They need to re-sign Aaron Judge. So, uh, you know, without him, they are not a very good team next year. I really do expect that's what's going to happen. That the Yankees are going to resign him to an epic contract because, like, like you said, he's a he's a Yankees Yankee, right? Like this guy, like you know, is just the embodiment of what the Yankees want their players to be, for better or for worse. You can like that, you can not like that. Uh, I find it fascinating to watch. I don't care what laundry the the athlete is wearing. I just find competitors and athletes really fascinating, and I just think that Aaron Judge is doing it at such a high level. Uh, I honestly can't take my eyes off it when I'm watching it. It's incredible. Um, we're talking about like the mental composure of of Aaron Judge and the, how focused and locked in he is on just like every moment and how challenging that must be for him. Well, the flip side of that would be a Toronto Blue Jays club that uh, made quite a few fundamental errors in this uh, series with the New York Yankees at Rogers Center. Um, you think back to game two and 
I think it was Rizzo hit it. There's a pot fly in shallow center field, and Bo Bichette's tracking back, and Teos Hernandez, George Springer are coming in, and Springer eases up. Should be the center fielder's ball, I think, you know, most of the time, um, unless you're in some sort of crazy shift. Uh, regardless, should be a ball that's caught 100 times out of 100, and it's not. And it, it drops in. And then you think to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. admiring, um, you know, a liner to left out of the box, doesn't run hard, doesn't hustle, and then um, basically like throws good money at bad and drowns first pace and tries to get to second and gets thrown out there. Um, you think about, you know, Bo Bichette with a throwing error, um, you know, with uh, Josh Donaldson running, not a fast runner, a guy on the back nine of his career. It's a grounder to short. Bichette makes a throwing error there, got speed up, sped up, maybe not trusting his arm in that spot. Um, you also think about Bichette getting tagged, coming off the base at second by Isaiah Kiner-Falefa after a, a double. And, and, you know, IKF just kind of stealthily hanging out back there. But, you know, Bichette not having the awareness to stay on the bag until the umpire calls time or until it really is done getting you know tagged out there you think about adam simber a guy who leads mlb in appearances has been a rock for the toronto blue jays a bedrock of this bullpen so reliable so dependable for them airmails a throw to home by a mile on a comebacker to the mound and then doesn't cover home plate gets lost in his own misplay and josh donaldson heady play comes around third reaches home i mean these are just the ones that come to mind <laughs> there's, there's more ben do you think that the blue jays make more fundamental errors or more mental miscues than the typical team or like do you think that every team is having nights like this like is this par for the course for mlb ball clubs or is this actually more of a problem for the blue jays i don't think it's more of a problem i think it would be about par for the course what about you I think that every team has nights like these. Like I think yeah. the Tampa Bay Rays have nights like these. I think the Dodgers have their blunders. Yeah. Like I, I honestly think the best teams in baseball have these things happen. Like it is interesting when you know you've got the manager of the club coming out and calling out its best player in Vladimir Guerrero yeah. Jr. Right? Uh, yeah, I I think that you know realistically the Jays want to be better than the average MLB team. They want to be on the upper end. They want to be more polished. And if they want to get to where they want to go, they're going to have to clean it up. So I think that it's it's definitely normal for these things to happen. I you know, I think those mistakes, especially the mental mistakes like Flatty just, you know, not going out of the box hard enough, Tay Oscar admiring his home run, you can't do that. Those are mistakes that are are just not excusable at this time in the year. At the same time, you know, to answer your question, I don't think they're out of the ordinary. I think that they're within the realm of what happens on major league teams, especially with young players. Um, you're going to see this happen at times, and it's okay. I think it's also imperative that they do clean it up because right now, and you know, we'll get to this as the podcast progresses here, but. They have so little margin right now. I mean, they're a game and a half up on the Tampa Bay Rays as we record this, but really that's a half game lead because they have to beat the Rays outright in the win column if they want to have home field over Tampa in the wildcard round. So realistically, they actually have a half game lead. If you have that small of a lead, you have to be performing almost, you know, toward the judge end of the spectrum where you are finding ways to make sure that you are bringing your full focus to every game. And we didn't see that from the Blue Jays this series, and it definitely cost them. I'm not going to say that it cost them a game, but it certainly cost them runs. It certainly cost them chances. And as they move ahead, they definitely do need to clean up some of those things and to bring more focus. I mean, there aren't that many games remaining for this team. They'll have off days between a lot of them. There's no reason that they can't, as they move ahead, bring better focus than what we saw this week. What do you make of John Schneider singling out Vlad after uh, the second game of this series? Probably his most pointed criticism of a specific player that we've seen from him since he took over as manager. I liked it. I think I think the way he did it provided full context around it. You know, he made sure to say it's not okay, it's not excusable. He also said I'll address it with Vladdy. He also said these things happen around young players. He made sure to 
convey that you know others including Bo Bichette had lapses and with Bo he came off the base at second he said Bo's got to do a better job of staying on the base there and then they, they kind of move on and you know observing Schneider like he has these little conversations with players all the time sometimes it's in the dugout sometimes it's in the clubhouse after the game with the beverage in hand perhaps going from you know various players uh, and and checking in with them saw that with Tim Meza after the game on Wednesday Meza gives up the bomb to judge it's like they're they're chatting, you know. It life goes on. It's not like you know, still trust in Tim Meza, and you just kind of see these little interactions, and there, of course, lots of interactions that we don't see. Um, so I think honestly, I really liked it. I, I think you know, Vladdy, I expect would get that. I mean, Vladdy's a, a baseball guy. He's played baseball forever. He understands this. He knows he should be running harder. It's not a mystery to him. He doesn't need to be told 10 times. But if Schneider tells him, he can handle that, right? Like he can he can handle that and he can move on. So yeah, I, I think that it's a great approach. And also it sends a message to, you know, whoever else is in there, Bradley Zimmer, Otto Lopez. If Schneider's calling out Vlad Jr., well, He's going to be making sure that all players are accountable. Yeah, he's speaking to the entire team. Like, uh, you know, Vlad's the guy who has to wear it. Um, But he really is speaking to the entire clubhouse when he says things like that through us. And it's not just, you know, oh, a slip of the tongue or something like that's purposeful. Like he's doing that for a reason. John Schneider knows exactly what he's doing. And like, here's the thing with with Vlad like the I really do think like it was the fact that he like it was the sunk cost thing like he threw good money after bad it was all right look you admired it and you you shouldn't have but whatever just take first base let the inning continue but he compounded it and he made it worse by trying to get to second and getting thrown out like after not hustling out of the box he should have just rounded first and eased up and said all right you know what I screwed up but let's let this inning continue. Like, let's not make another out and make this worse. And look, like, we're, we we all watch Vladimir Guerrero Jr. a lot. I honestly think, like, 98 out of 100 times, he hustles really hard. Think about how often you see him tearing around the base pass, right? He's a really aggressive base runner. Um, think about how often you see him sprinting after those, like, pop-ups in foul territory beyond first base, and he makes those, like, flyer out over-the-shoulder catches. Um, like, I really do think that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. plays hard a lot of the time, but there are, like, two times out of 100 when, honestly, he doesn't. And you remember that minority of times honestly those stick out like particularly when um outs result from them as they have here right like those are those are what sticks out in your head and i get it like that's just kind of human nature that's just kind of how the mind works and when you think about like the uh, 162 game season name me the player in baseball who goes maximum effort 100 percent of the time over a full season he doesn't exist because that's not that's not sustainable like you just can't play at that level over 162 in six months right like you have to pick your spots like you have to make decisions about when you really push for that short-term gain and when to do like what's best for your body over the long term and you know do what you need to do to sort of keep yourself on the field and be productive late into a season and it's one thing then when you do that late in June, right in the middle of summer, and it's the end of a long road trip and everybody's grinding and it's like a mid afternoon, you know, matinee midweek game on the South side of Chicago and it's three, seven degrees and you've played 15 days in a row. That's one thing. It's another thing here on September 29th. And that's kind of the point, right? Is that you were making is that like, it's a playoff race. It's now is the time to push. There are times to throttle back and only give like the 70, 75% effort and kind of preserve yourself for the season. And there are times like now where you have to be Aaron Judge and you have to be laser focused. That's what's so impressive about Judge is that he's done it that way all year, right? That's so uncommon for Vlad, for the Blue Jays, for Teoscar Hernandez, for Bo Bichette, for everyone. Like right now is the time where everything does have to be held to a higher standard and have to be closer to perfect because there is no more like long view. The long view is short. I mean, you've got maybe a month left of baseball. You hope you have a month left of baseball. You might only have like 12 days. We'll see. Um, but this is, you know, this is the time where you do have to actually like really lock in. And so I think that's why that, you know, John Schneider was disappointed to see um, those miscues and those errors, you know, crop up 
now. And I think he is trying to create a, a culture of accountability around that stuff. And there's probably a lot more work to be done on that like next spring. This isn't a message you want coming from your manager. This is a message you want coming from Vlad's teammates. And this you want this to just be like the standard and be something that is unacceptable and that like doesn't happen on your team and within your clubhouse and isn't tolerated and people are saying things about it. Like you want that message coming from teammates, not coming from the manager on the podium through us. So I do think there's a lot more work to be done on that culture stuff and that accountability stuff next spring. But like for now, I, I think that John Schneider had to kind of like set the tone and make it clear like, Hey, this isn't how it's, this ain't it. This isn't how it's, it's going to be for us. If, if we're going to be successful over the next month. That definitely makes sense. Uh, a lot of a lot of good points in there. I think um, it's interesting on the accountability question because you know you're you're looking at a group that I, I think actually has kind of both of those things going on. Where you know the players, from what we've been told, did uh, have some discussions in in that clubhouse themselves. Um, you certainly see uh, leadership in the form of action from guys like Matt Chapman who just bust up the line uh, at this point in the season in ways that they didn't in May and shouldn't in May. No one's saying that Matt Chapman should give 100% effort on May the 15th. That's, uh, you know, when he's when he's running the bases anyway. Yeah, and, and even now for Alejandro Kirk, you don't want Alejandro Kirk going max, max, max effort. But there is absolutely no excuse for Vlad Jr. not to give 80% effort when he's going out of the box. Teoscar Hernandez, same thing. Not saying 100%. 80% effort, not 30% effort going out of the box. That's pretty clear. That evidently has been discussed amongst the, the players in that room. And John Schneider made those comments publicly. And I think there's nothing wrong with a, a clear double-barreled approach there. He doesn't, John Schneider doesn't have to pretend that everything's okay. He can say that this isn't, isn't acceptable in that moment and then move on because there's a lot of baseball left. And ultimately, you know, these players will be judged by what happens from this point on. They were always favored to make the playoffs in the 2022 season. They're going to make the playoffs in the 2022 season. And really, now they have to make the most of that opportunity. Because if they go home after a wild card series, this season, I mean, it's it's going to be a disappointment. It is. And the players need to do everything that they can to push themselves past that first round. And you don't do that by doing anything less than full effort. I think that's stating the obvious. I don't think that's a hot take. I think that's pretty clear um, when the when you're playing a three game series. But that should be obvious by now to every player on that team. Yeah, and I just think that you know there's there's something bigger at play here when it just comes to culture and it comes to accountability and it comes to sort of the standard that you're gonna set. Because if you do have like a really strong culture within your team and you do have a really strong standard of effort and just how you're going to play the game. I don't think you see some of the things we saw in this Yankees series when it comes to, as you said, the the Vlad play that we've gone over, but also like Teoscar Hernandez, who thought he hit a grand slam and the ball goes off the top of the wall and he stood at the plate holding his bat up, pimping the, what was not a home run for way too long. Like that, that one to me was way more egregious. And we don't talk about it because he got into second because the Yankees went for the out at home, but they would have had Teoscar dead to rights a second if they'd gone for him at second. That one was way worse because he didn't run at all. Vlad was given his 30%. Teoscar was given about a half a percent. Um, and honestly, just going for the epic moment. And like that stuff you can't have. Like that was really, really bad to me. And so I think you want next spring to sit down or like to just have an environment where it's like, this is the standard. This is how we're going to play. That stuff ain't going to fly. And this is like between the walls stuff and culture stuff and accountability stuff with like, players it's always it's difficult for us to talk about because we're not in the clubhouse we've never been in an MLB clubhouse as an active player but I've talked to and I know you've talked to enough people who have who understand like the difference between a team that doesn't have these things happen and a team that does have these happen so I guess what I'm saying is that like there is a there there <laughs> is what I'm trying to say it's not nothing there's something there yeah, and and look, the if you want to if you want to take a uh, I guess two things off of that one one if you hit a no doubt home run, flip your bat, 
do a dance, whatever you want to do. I am. We are pro bat flip. Yes. Pro like that stuff is great. Just make yes. sure you actually hit the home run. <laughs> you know that's yes. that should that should be obvious. And, and the second thing is like you could take an optimistic reading of this, and you could say, hey. Teams are fluid. They're fluid with who is on the roster. They're fluid with who is managing the team. And they can be fluid with what approaches the team heads from day to day and week to week. And so you could say that the Jays have a chance right here to change that and to be a better version of the Toronto Blue Jays going into October. If they can do that, they'll improve their chances of winning some rounds. If they can't, then we'll probably be doing a debrief on what went wrong with the Jays season. And that might be on the list of reasons. Bo Bichette, on the other hand, has been making some physical errors at shortstop, not necessarily mental ones, but five errors in eight games uh, over the last couple of weeks. And like, it's like an error isn't a great way to measure a guy's defensive play. Uh, errors are not a great way to measure, you know, how, how somebody is performing defensively. We know that. By now, Bobachek gets a ton of defensive opportunities. He plays every day at shortstop, so he's going to have a lot of errors because the ball's in his hands a lot. If you order the errors leaderboard, it's all going to be everyday shortstops at the top of it. Um, but outs above average, which is you know a, a bit more um, advanced than errors, would tell you that uh, yeah, this is a below average shortstop defensively this season. What do you make of the physical areas we're seeing from Bo Bichette and and what that could mean for his future at the position? It's it's definitely worth noting because defense can slump and does slump. And I think Bo Bichette's in a defensive slump. This is not a good time for a defensive slump. When you look to 2023, I think it's totally fine to go into the season with, with Bo as your shortstop. He can handle the position. He can play it at a major league level. No issues with him as the shortstop in 23. And again, we don't know when this slump will end. I'm convinced that he's obviously a better shortstop than what we've seen in the last week. It was just a couple weeks ago that we were singing his praises offensively. He's, he's a streaky player at the plate. What we're seeing now is not good defensively. But, I, you know, I will say, you know, I've, I've gotten some questions from other folks around the league. Like, what's going on with his defense? What's what's going on there? Is, you know, that little sidearm throws sometimes and... You know, it's not a good time for the defense to be slumping at one of the most important defensive positions. So we'll see where it goes from here. He's obviously capable of being better. I think that when I look at the best shortstops in baseball, and this is also just from talking to people like who in the game who think a lot about shortstop play at the major league level, it's the guys who have no question about their arm. No question about their arm strength. No question about their accuracy. Like they believe I can make every throw and it's going to be automatic and I don't even have to think about it. And people will tell you it actually starts there. And then that's like carries over to everything else because now you're not rushing. Now you're not rushing to get a ball. Now you're not rushing to, you know, move your feet. Like you're not, you know, there a lot of Bobachette throws you he doesn't necessarily set his feet. Um, and a lot of the throws, as you said, are kind of like that sidearm thing and not over the top. Um, so, you know, I wonder if that's something that, that plays into it, if it actually starts with the arm and then that goes backwards to the glove and the hands and the feet and everything else. Like, that's just one thing that I've heard from from within the game. Like, as far as his future, the position, he's the best shortstop that they have right now. And he's going to be the best shortstop that they have next year unless they had a really good shortstop. So could Bo Bichette not be the shortstop next year? Yes, if Trey Turner's the shortstop. If yeah. Carlos Correa opts out and is the shortstop. But to me, that's, like, the only, you know, situation is where, like, it's a huge name, legit every day really good shortstop at the big league level is brought into this club then okay then you think about another position for Bo Bichette otherwise he is your shortstop going forward and and you live with the slumps like he's in right now you also live with like the really good plays that he makes pretty regularly where the athleticism takes over and you see like oh hey like he is pretty good fastball lined and Bichette has it and he will go to second base for the double play. Well, there's another red star for your book, and that was a beauty. I mean, Bo up the middle, 
just reacted. The ball was hit about shin high all the way back behind the base at second. And watch the reaction. To the <laughs> like he, he's come a long way. He's really improved. He's playing the position well at the big league level. There are just you know going to be blips like this right now. And I think if you're the Blue Jays, you hope he comes out of it pretty quickly. No doubt. And it's a good thing that to his right, they have the best defensive third baseman that at least I've ever seen. Never watched much Nolan Arenado up close, but Matt Chapman is <laughs> a very good defensive third baseman. So that balances things out to some extent. In terms of very good players at the big league level, we're actually going to talk about that on the other side of the break. So all that and so much more when we continue on at the letters. It continues on at the letters. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. And it is time now for Major League Beer for Major League Baseball. Brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Ben, I got to thinking about this on Wednesday night as Anthony Rizzo was kind of doing his uh, managerial understudy thing with Aaron Boone uh, on the New York Yankees side after they clinched the AL East. And I was thinking like, man, Anthony Rizzo's had like a super underappreciated career. Um, This is not somebody who's going to be a Hall of Famer by any means, but I do think this is a Hall of Very Good like he has just had like such a solid you know and it's still going right like he's only 32 but you know on the cusp of 1500 hits and 300 homers and he's got all the gold gloves obviously won that world series with the cubs and he's been a silver slugger and i mean it's just a a nice steady productive hall of very good career like i'd throw evan longoria into that as well right there's a guy who's just been around for a lot of years and put up a ton of numbers and just always been very good um, and I think there's a lot of underappreciated players like that in the game who maybe don't get their due. So for you, who is your underappreciated Hall of Very Good MLB player? Well, just real quick, I, I think Evan Longoria might be a Hall of Famer. You think so? I mean, yeah, I think he's got a shot. I think he's got a shot, but we'll see. That'd be interesting. We'll My Hall of Very Good player is Johnny Cueto. I think Johnny Cueto is someone who came into the league, was thought of as a frontline starter, traded in a big deal, led the league in innings pitched. Uh, he's been an all-star a couple of times, 20-game winner. And then he kind of faded into the background as he aged with that big contract. But he came back this year at age 36, 3.39 ERA, hovering around 40 war for his career. So that's kind of that standard Hall of Very Good territory for Johnny Cueto. And he's probably got another year left in him, if not more. So I would give Johnny Cueto some credit, someone who keeps hitters off balance, different deliveries, different uh, you know pitches to, to keep the hitters guessing. Always a, a very good pitcher, never the best pitcher in the league, never the best pitcher of his generation. But to me, Johnny Cueto is kind of in that perfect sweet spot of Hall of Very Good. I'll say this. If Evan Longoria is a Hall of Famer, Scott Rowland needs to be a Hall of Famer. I don't know if he's still going to be on the ballot by the time that Chamokes like you and I get ballots. Yeah. But yeah, if, if Longoria is a Hall of Famer, Scott Rowland's for sure a Hall of Famer. Yes. And I think Scott Rowland for sure is a Hall of Famer and should be. We'll see. Uh, so the Blue Jays have plenty of decisions to make over the uh, the next week because, uh, look, the magic number's one. We'll see. By the time people listen to this, Baltimore Orioles may have lost on Thursday afternoon and the Blue Jays will have clinched a postseason berth and like what would honestly be kind of an unfortunate circumstance and that they yeah. clinch on an off day and they don't get to have a big you know moment with the fans and they're on the field and celebrating and everybody's appreciating it. Like I imagine the Blue Jays are gathering somewhere on thursday afternoon to watch that uh that game or you know whoever wants to between the the red sox and orioles and you know if the red sox win they'll probably have a little celebration and if the orioles win uh, they'll just have a good time regardless a little bit of an awkward scenario but you know for the blue jays front office and coaching staff now they gotta think about playoff uh roster they gotta think about playoff rotation they gotta think about position players and how to fill out the bullpen and what they might need and situations and game planning and all this stuff so let's kind of try to think along with them and let's try to plot out how we'd line up the blue jays postseason roster and then also how we think the blue jays might line it up 
Go ahead, Ben. You want to say something? Yeah, just just to jump in real quick here. So I think just to set some parameters, 26 players, up to 13 pitchers. And when the Blue Jays set this roster, they can also reset it for the division series. So this is only for the wild card. Yes, three-game wild card series, which as things are, uh, you know, as things look right now, Blue Jays positioned to host that series. I still think that's the most likely outcome, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens over there. Final six games and, you know, the final games of Tampa Bay and Seattle have to play starters. What's your rotation? How are you lining things up? Games, who's starting game one, game two, game three? And which starters are you taking uh, on your wild card roster? Taking four starters, you need four. So you're taking Manoa, Gosman, Barrios, and Stripling. They're all on the roster in any scenario. Now, how they are sequenced from a starting standpoint, some of that depends on how they get there. Do they have to use Manoa in 162? Ideally, you don't have to use Manoa, and your starting rotation is Manoa, Gosman, and then probably Stripling leading into a bullpen game for me. Some of that depends on the opponent, but I, I don't know how you see it, Arden. To me, I would I would do Stripling leading into a bullpen game uh, as that lead scenario for best case for the Jays. Let me put it this way. Do you think they will use Manoa in 162? If home field is at stake? Yeah. I, I think they will. I think the plan's changed. I don't think that that's what they're going to do. And I don't think that was ever something that they, you know, John Schneider said as in like, we're definitely going to do this. I think when he said absolutely, he meant absolutely that is something we would, we would do. It's not something we will do. I think he's what he, the message was, this is one of the options we would consider. Yes. It wasn't, this is definitely what we're going to do. And I get that that then, you know, negates uh, how many countless hours of sports talk radio over the last week. But I mean, that was the intention of what was said. And honestly, I think it's really unlikely now that the Blue Jays would use Alec Manoa in 162, even if home field was was on the table. I think the way they're going to line it up is they're going to come out of the off day with Ross Stripling starting the opener against Boston. And then Alec Manoa is going to start the second game. And then probably Jose Barrios in the third game against Boston. And then I think they're going to give Manoa five days off between like the second game of Boston. And then you get the third. So the third game against Boston's first day off. They've got three against Baltimore. Those are four. The off day is five. And then he starts game one of the wildcard series. I think that's how they're going to line it up. Really? I think he's definitely starting Friday. You think so? That's the messaging we've been getting from the Jays anyways, but maybe there's a reversal coming. I kind of wonder, and the Blue Jays haven't announced there's probable starters for Boston, but I kind of wonder if they go stripling Manoa and Barrios out of the off day. We'll see. And I think they're going to line Manoa up for game one of the wild card. And I think then they might line up the Barrios slash stripling day for game two of the wild card. Interesting. And they would still have Kevin Gosman available for game two of the wild card on regular rest, uh, but they could give them the extra day and have them go in game three. And I do wonder if in game one, because look, you think about it, game two of the wild card series is really like the most important game of that series, I th- in my opinion, because yeah. like somebody's playing not to go home. Either you are playing to clinch that series or you are playing to um, not go home Uh, there's something going on in that game I think if the Blue Jays win game one with Alec Manoa they would go like either Barrios or Stripling in game two and take their chances there and see if they could win that and having Kevin Gosman in their back pocket for game three and then you hope you don't need him for game three you hope you win game two and you sweep away whoever you're playing and then you have Kevin Gosman set up to start the first game of the DS beautiful and he's still in your back pocket for game three if you need him. If you end up in right. a like elimination game three situation in the wild card. I kind of wonder if that's the construction that the Blue Jays might go with. If it's me, if it's if Arden's the manager, I don't get cute. And I go Manoa Gosman, flip a coin between them, game one, game two, whatever you like. I'm yep. giving both those guys five days rest before that uh, those outings, and I'm pitching my two best guys in games one and games two, and then game three I am like going whoever is the better matchup of Stripling and Barrios, and I'm just bullpenning anyway after uh, yeah. you know probably like the fifteenth guy <laughs> that comes to the plate 
anyway. So it's not really a traditional start for either of those two. So that, that's what I do. But yeah, I do wonder if the Blue Jays are, are thinking about a more creative uh, scenario. Yeah, interesting. I, I, yeah, definitely a lot of ways you could look at it. To me, I, I think they keep Manoa on Friday against the Red Sox. And then I think they have him available for the final game against the Orioles. I think they could use him in a shortened start that day. That would set up, again, a short rest availability for game three of the wild card if needed. That's not ideal. You don't want to do that. So much better for the Blue Jays if they already have home field, they don't use Manoa, or maybe they they don't have home field, they still don't use Manoa, and then you go into the wild card series, you go Manoa Gosman. To me, the most important games are games one and two, obviously. But they're all important. It's a wild card series. There's really no game that's not important in that series. Um, there's no game that you can coast. They're all incredibly important. And so I, I think you want, yeah, Manoa Gosman, games one and two. And I don't think you need to try to uh, finesse a bullpen game in there unnecessarily. But either way, I think you're taking those four starting pitchers. And, and there could be a day in that series where some combination of Stripling and Barrios are essentially going to be uh, your starting matchup. Maybe there's an opener in there. Maybe Trevor Richards. You know, if there's a couple lefties, if you're facing facing the Guardians, I don't know. Do you consider that? But those guys will be on the roster and they'll be important parts. I think either way, you're taking the four starters because, you know, say Alec Manoa starts the opener and takes a comebacker off the elbow or something like that and has to leave the start. Like you want to have a like Stripling or a Barrios, whoever's not going to be your starter in, you know, the third game in the bullpen able to come in and like bail you out of a tough situation. A hundred percent. And remember, too, there's no automatic runner in extra innings yeah. in the postseason. So you need to have someone in case the game goes 14 innings, you're not using, you know, Trevor Richards for four innings or Adam Simber isn't throwing 85 pitches. Like you want to have someone who's actually uh, capable of giving you some length. So that's four. We got our four starters. Let's bold out our bullpen. The locks in the bullpen. I don't think there's any question about it. Jordan Romano, Jimmy Garcia, Anthony Bass, Tim Meza, Adam Simber, David Phelps, do you agree with me? Those are six locks in the bullpen. We can put them on the roster in permanent marker. I, I, I mostly agree with you. The first five, no question. Now, is Phelps, Phelps a lock? Yeah, he's a lock. I would, if anything, I would add one. I would say Trevor Richards is a lock. Trevor, what is yeah? What makes you think that Trevor Richards is a is a lock for the postseason roster? It's because I can't imagine scenarios where he's not on the roster unless he's injured. <laughs> and he's pitched really well lately. He really has. He was really good on Wednesday. Yeah. He was phenomenal. Really well. Coming in yeah. after Mitch White came in with, I don't know if there were runners on when he came in, but he came in towards the end of an inning, got a ground ball, then like struck out four straight dudes, did two up downs and came back. I mean, for yeah. a reliever, for a guy who's not used to doing that, like that was really impressive. Like the, it's not, you know, it's not just like the amount of innings that you pitch in or like the amount of batters you face or the amount of pitches you throw. It's the like fluctuations in intensity. It's going into the dugout and sitting for, could be 10 minutes, could be 25 minutes, and then going back out and ramping things back up. Relievers are not accustomed to doing that multiple times in an outing. So that was really impressive to me from him. And yeah, like I I agree like he would be on my postseason roster too, and I believe he is on the Blue Jays postseason roster regardless. But I do think like he is within kind of that bubble group of, we could call it Richards, Zach Pop. Um, Julian Merriweather, uh, Mitch White. You could throw Nate Pearson in there if you want to, although I don't think he's really no. a factor. And not Yusei Kikuchi. I do not no. think Yusei Kikuchi's on. He's not on my postseason roster. I don't believe he's on the Blue Jays' postseason roster. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Pearson and Kikuchi, they're just they're on the outside looking in, clearly. I, I think you, know, you could make a case for Pop, White, or Merriweather. All three have been optioned in the last six weeks. So that tells you the Jays are willing to live without these guys. Now... Uh, Trevor Richards does not have options, so that's not uh, a possibility the Jays can consider. I, I just think he's pitched well enough recently, and he gives them, he almost functions in a way as like a second lefty because of how they use him, and, and Mays is probably the only lefty they take, just given yeah. who they have personnel-wise. So 
I just I think Richards is on there, and so that gives you okay. seven. If he is, that's seven. Now they can take up to well 13. four starters, so that would be nine relievers would be the max. They're not like I do not see a situation where they only take eleven pitchers, so they're taking at least eight, maybe nine relievers. So that gives them one of with our seven. That gives them one of Pop White Merriweather, and then you've got an eight man bullpen. And to me. You know, Mitch White, his command is not really there. Uh, you know, he gives you length, yes, but I just I think that the option to go with here is Pop out of the three. Um, so that's that's where I see them going. But we'll see how that goes. I think there's two potential things there. There is like a slot for a one inning guy, i.e., Pop Merriweather, um, and there's slot for like a bulk guy as well. Because in the current configuration of our seven, we don't have a bulk guy. And Trevor Richards, David Phelps, they can extend outings. Like maybe that covers it for you. I do wonder if you want to have like a white on there um, because like say it's a blowout and you just want somebody to cover some innings and you don't want to use anybody of like who you might even think about using in leverage like you don't want to go to your Barrios or your stripling in that spot so you just want to like cover some innings in an 11-1 game and it's like here's Mitch White who's going to log like three innings for us I wonder if that's something they think about I do think definitely like so we got the seven locks i do think you take definitely one more. And for me, if it's between Pop or Merriweather, I'm going with Zach Pop right now, just based on recent performance. They both got really good stuff. But I mean, I think we've seen Zach Pop's stuff more effective at the big league level recently. So to me, I would throw Pop in there as my eighth. And I am considering Mitch White. But with the way the Blue Jays roster is constructed on the position player side, and we're going to get to this, with like some of the health concerns with Espinal and Goriel, I want the extra position player slot. Like I want to be heavier on position players. So I'm only going to take 12 of my possible 13 pitchers, and I'm not going to take Mitch White because I think I can have Richards or Phelps cover innings if I need them to. So I'm going to take Zach Pop as just another like get me a ground ball guy or you know matchup guy or whatever. Um, and I'm not going to take Mitch White. So I'm going to have eight in my bullpen. Yeah, right. I, you know, to me, I think I, I agree. Eight is the number to have in the bullpen. I just I think Pop makes more sense because if you're Let's say, so you're playing three games. Let's say you go to the the max. If you're winning, you're probably not using Zach Pop a lot anyways. You know, maybe he gets an inning. That's about it. You're probably not using Trevor Richards a ton if you're winning the series. And if you're losing, well, you're going home anyways. Like, I I just, I I think that in, in a series where you're covering, you know, let's say it's 13, 14 bullpen innings, you have eight relievers. That's fine. (laughs) <laughs> Eight relievers can cover 13 innings over three days. Like, that's that's not egregious. Plus, you have the other starter who's available um, out of the four who's not even starting a game. So I, I think you're actually totally fine in that situation with eight relievers. I think you're fine, too. You do... You could be a scenario where you wish you had a bulk guy in the bullpen. Like you said, 15-inning game or something like that or a blowout. But, yeah, I think you should be fine. I think just for the Blue Jays... You know, situation in particular with the health stuff on the position player side, I think it makes sense to go have your position player. So we've got four starters and we got eight in the bullpen. So we got 12. So that leaves room for 14 position players right now as we're constructing this roster. So let's kind of go around the diamond and talk about the locks. So behind the plate, your catchers, Kirk and Jansen, right? There's two. Vlad's your first baseman slash DH. Kevin Biggio and Santiago Espinal at second base. We can talk about Espinal's health in a second. Uh, Boba Shet's your shortstop. Matt Chapman's your third baseman. Around the outfield, Lourdes Goriel Jr., George Springer, Teoscar Hernandez, left to right. Now, this assumes health for Espinal and Goriel. And I think Lourdes Goriel Jr. has a much more realistic chance of being ready for the postseason um he's gonna do some base running on friday and the blue jays are gonna kind of see how he responds to that but i mean he's like he's getting closer whereas with espinal i feel like he's really up against it to get back 
for the playoffs with only a week remaining and just the level of baseball activity that he's kind of gotten to at this point. Um, even like, you know, like best, 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 best case scenario, honestly, is that like he's ready for like the final game of the season and maybe he gets one tune up. I could see Lourdes Gurriel Jr. on a wild card roster. I'm starting to wonder if Santiago Espinal is going to be ready to go for, for a wild card series. Yeah, interesting. We'll learn more in the next couple of days on that front. But I think either way, for both players, it kind of reinforces that Whit Merrifield is, is going to be on this roster. Not that there was necessarily a huge question there, but there was a time maybe a couple of weeks ago I was starting to wonder, like, what, what yeah. role does he fill exactly? But he started to hit. And given the injuries to a corner outfielder and a second baseman, this is why you get that depth. You just want to have a capable major league player to step in. Whitmerfield can can be that. Whether he will be, you know, we'll we'll see. But he can offer that. So I think he's on the roster. And you know, I, I agree with the way you laid things out there. I, I agree with the injury questions here. And I think also, you know, that that opens things up on the bench for a lot of outfielders. I mean, you've got None of the names that you've mentioned so far, but Tapia, Bradley uh, Jr., and Jack and Bradley Zimmer would all be strong candidates to be on this roster. And there's some redundancy there. None of those guys do everything. They all do something. And so it it's not the most conventional fit. No one would set out to build a team this way. You know, when you're looking at the, the ideal ways to build a roster, no one's thinking you're going to have these three backup outfielders. But, I mean... There's kind of a case, and they all hit left, and none of them really hit that well. There's still kind of a case, and in my opinion, it's the best way to go, to take them all on your roster going into that wildcard round. I'm taking them all because I'm not certain about Lourdes Gurriel Jr.'s health. If Lourdes Gurriel Jr. was fully healthy and he was going to play every day, then, I mean, you're starting Goriel and left, Springer and center, Hernandez and right, and then you're going to carry three outfielders on the bench Bradley Zimmer and Tapia. And it's almost like I don't think the Blue Jays will leave Rymel Tapia off their postseason roster, but it's almost like Rymel Tapia is not starting over any of those three guys. He's yep. not pinch hitting for any of those three guys. He's not like defending <laughs> for any of those three guys. So it's almost like what's the scenario where realistically you're getting into a game? But for me, it's just Goriel might have to DH one of these games. Um, Goriel might not be all the way ready to go. Um, you might want to pinch run for Goriel at times if his hammy like is like 65% of the way yeah. there and he can't give you a lot on the base pass. So I think that Tapia's on the club. And yeah, I mean, with just with the way things are breaking, I think both Zimmer and Bradley, who, yeah, pretty superfluous, right? Like kind of similar. But I think that, you know, you, you could see the the Zimmer and center Bradley and right defensive alignment late in the game where you're trying to protect a one-two run lead. You could see that being an advantage you'd want to have. Well, think about the scenario where the Jays win this, right? If the Jays win this series, they are likely going to win it with Jackie Bradley Jr. in right field at the end of the game and Bradley Zimmer in center field. They use these guys in games that they win, in close games that they win. And so that, to me, means there's a a case for having these guys on. Now, you could say, all right, this is too much. Like, realistically, what are the odds? And they can map this out. What are the odds that a gapper is going to be hit precisely to the point that Bradley Zimmer could catch it, but Teoscar Hernandez could not? You know, it's a slim chance realistically. Now, you could weigh that against Gabriel Moreno. What are the odds that, okay, let's talk about Alejandro Kirk and his left hip, which, you know, he's still playing, but I highly doubt that he is 100% healthy. And certainly, his running would suggest that, you know, he's not fully, fully comfortable at this point with that hip injury. So, do you want to pinch run for an Alejandro Kirk late in games? Well, if you're doing that, and he's the catcher and Danny Jansen's DHing, you lose your DH. If you have two catchers, not a great situation. If Kirk is DHing, that's easy, straight swap. But if Kirk is catching, or if you want to pinch run for Jansen when he is catching, you risk losing your DH. Now, with a big bench, you can roll with that, and you can continue pinch hitting when that slot comes up. You have enough position players to to do that. Do they give you a lot of offense? Not necessarily. But the solution there, in theory, would be if you want to roster a Gabriel Moreno, and then Moreno is someone who can then slot in as the catcher. 
He's also been working out at different positions, a little bit of infield drills, a little bit of outfield. At the same time, do you really want Gabriel Moreno's bat in there in a in a playoff game? Like, I'm not sure that he's that much of an upgrade over Jackie Bradley Jr. at this point. But it's a lot of stuff to kind of consider. And in your construction, I mean, it is either Moreno or one of those outfielders because you're out of spots. You've got your 14 accounted for. Yes. Yep. So exactly. you've, got, you've got Moreno off your roster. Yeah. Yeah. I have Moreno on mine in place of Santiago Espinal, who I just don't believe uh, is going to be ready. I don't yeah. think he's going to be there for, for the wild card round. I think DS a possibility. And maybe yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe he'll you know have a really, really, really quick comeback <laughs> in recovery over the next week and be ready for the wild card round. But I just don't think Espinal's realistically going to be ready for this thing. I think Guriel even is just is rushing it to be back. So we'll see. I could be wrong, but I think that Espinal is off my wild card roster and and you know, healing up and working with my taxi squad. By the way, Blue Jays will have a taxi squad in uh, in Buffalo, it was going to be in Dunedin, but you know, there's a little hurricane going on there right now. In case you heard, so uh, like the Blue Jays player development complex is now literally a shelter for you know any players and staff and family that are down there. Um, and in Buffalo at Salem Field, the Blue Jays going to have a taxi squad of all these guys that we have mentioned who are off of our rosters. So like your your Kikuchis and your Pearsons and your Merriweathers, your Mitch Whites, like they're going to keep throwing at Salem Field just to be ready for later on in the playoffs if they're needed some of these position players like you know we haven't mentioned Otto Lopez he's not on either of our postseason rosters he's gonna keep swinging a bat in you know in Buffalo against Nate Pearson and and you know I'm sure like your Vinny Capras of this world and guys like that are gonna you know stay ready in case they're needed um for me, Moreno is on my postseason roster in place of Espinal. I got Espinal in in Buffalo, just getting back up to speed, seeing some pitching, getting ready for the DS. And I got Moreno on my roster uh, for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. Now I have no concerns with catcher DH, Kirk, Jansen, whichever one you want in that spot i got no concerns there if i got a pinch hit or pinch run for a guy i got moreno who can come in behind the plate i got no concerns if i have to use moreno in a pinch on the infield either um i don't know about the outfield guys never played there before and i think that a postseason game would be a hell of an entry point for a guy's first experience at that position i don't know how you know how i'd feel about that but if i had to use him at third base because something crazy happened or something happened to bobachette now matt chapman's playing shortstop for me or somebody got thrown out of the game or there's an injury or whatever or like i had some sort of crazy pinch run pinch hit scenario like some sort of insane substitutions while i'm trying to match up with kevin cash on the other side and i've ended up in a spot where i need gabriel moreno to like play third or second even or first base it might happen so i'm bringing gabriel moreno on my roster just as that contingency layer and at second base it's going to be kevin biggio or whit merrifield starting the game Man, if Kevin Cash can manage the Blue Jays into getting Boba Shed out of the game and Santiago Espinal at third, just give him manager of the year right then and there. That would be incredible. <laughs> no, that's far-fetched. Um, yeah. But you could see an injury. No, no, no. You could I, see something crazy yeah, happening. Exactly. Ejection, right? Like yeah, These ejection. things happen. So Bo Bichette is tossed from the game, although Bo is, Bo is rarely one to, to get into that situation. But again, strange things happen. And if Espinal is out, which is a possibility, he's your backup shortstop. So then Chapman becomes your backup shortstop. They'll have no trouble covering in the outfield, but the infield is a little bit more of a situation there. Biggio would be another option to go to third with Chapman going to short. None of this is going to happen. Bobachet's going to play every <laughs> inning at shortstop for the rest of the Blue Jays season. But these are the contingencies you look at. And I do agree with you that if they did have a spot open because of Espinal. I like Moreno there more than Mitch White because, again, I think they can cover the innings. So take Moreno, put him at, at on the roster. He gives you some insurance, and that is a real value. So I think we're mostly aligned on how to build this playoff roster. I agree. Um, there are uh, more questions on the position player side, which is why I'm like leaning heavier position player in the in the wild card round. I think in the DS, I'm probably filling my 13 pitchers spots. I think I'm yeah. actually certainly Agreed. filling my 13 pitchers Mitch spots. White. Right, and then that makes it interesting because then you've got you know a, a decent name or like a, a notable omission 
on the position player side, whether that's one of the outfielders. I don't think it'll be with Merrifield at this point. So, you know, if, if Espinal's back and you take off Moreno, I mean, you still got to lose a position player at that point in the DS. Um, it'd be very interesting to see who that is. Hopefully we get to see who that is because that means the Blue Jays are playing in the DS. Got to get there first. But yeah, this is how we'd line up our, our wildcard rosters. And then you tell Sean Schneider, hey, you've got all the tools. You've got everything you need to match up, to pinch it, to pinch run. you got various bullpen options. you got different rotation options. Time to go manage your ass off. And uh, John Schneider's the guy to do that. Yeah, he's been doing a, a very good job tactically. Um, as well as behind the scenes from what we can tell seems like he's really enjoying the challenge so far from all the comments he's made it's a really good roster i think any manager let alone any first-time manager um, who's been on the job for a few months any manager would look at this roster and say yeah i can win with this group like if you if you don't look at this roster and think you can win the world series you should not be managing major league baseball (laughs) yeah no you got a lot of flexibility it's really good Yeah, yeah it's a good team it's a good team I was saying that last night on the broadcast with Wagner. I was like, this is a good team. Like, I know sometimes they, they have their moments and they have their fluctuations like any other club does, but it really is a good team. I really would not be surprised if the Blue Jays won the World Series. Like, it wouldn't surprise me. But also, Ben, I wouldn't be surprised if they were swept out of the postseason in two games. Neither of that's those right. outcomes would surprise me, honestly. I think it's all on the that's table because it's a crazy, fluky little tournament that they're about to enter. So I could see either so. of those things happening. Which is why they need to play to their max of their potential right now. Because those two, three little games that you're playing, just you know, run hard out of the box and uh, do your preparation and make that roster as good as you can, and you know, th- let the talent take over because they have tons of talent and they've and they've worked hard to to make that talent into what it is. That's right. Mid-June ATLs. Maybe the preparation wasn't quite there. Maybe the <laughs> effort lapsed a little bit but it's late september baby going into october we are full on full steam ahead not missing a beat with preparation and with effort given on the podcast that's what you can expect going forward well we uh we have a lot a lot uh coming up on on at the letters so stick with us here we've got a lot coming your way i'm not sure that the podcast uh podcast uh effort scale is is necessarily the exact same i'm not sure how that how that corresponds to major league baseball i like to think that we give our all 12 months a year but uh but certainly some podcasts some podcasts are higher leverage than others (laughs) (laughs) he's ben nooksen smith i'm arden zwelling our producers are christian ryan and nick andrade we'll talk to you next week on at the letters.